Navy for more to listen to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank my good friend Bruce Springsteen for writing that song about his favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. It's the only wicked good wrestling podcast out there. Give us 60 minutes and we'll give you a raw bone podcast. This show drops on November the 15th. At the exact same time where season four of Men in the High Castle is being dropped by Amazon. Amazon is doing everything they can to compete with this podcast, and they're going to lose in the end. With that, I want to bring on my convivial co-host, Sean Goodwin. Sean, how are you? I'm doing well, and this is the spot where I'm supposed to tell you the glory of the Stick to Wrestling Facebook page, which if you had not been paying attention this past week, you should be, but if you haven't been, you would see a wonderful cartoon rendering of Dusty Rhodes. You would see the links to the newest Stick to Wrestling YouTube uploads. So yes, we're there too. Like Mel Brooks, we're like the mango in a smoothie, just taking the whole thing over. Yes, sir. Uh, so we do have a, we do have YouTube videos to check out now, uh, clips of the show. Uh, we have a video of the King not only getting pinned in Memphis but getting pinned for a five count. Uh, Kevin Orchid's back, so we got uh, some links back to Oregon, LA, and San Francisco goodness. Pat Patterson and Eddie Mansfield, the Continental Lover at the Olympic, and a wrestling magazine from Puerto Rico featuring Tommy Gilbert Jr. and Senior. Very nice. Uh- yeah, so we're, we're dropping this on November 15th, uh, 35 years ago today. Rocky Johnson and Tony Atlas won the WWF Tag Team titles. I was greatly surprised by that switch because normally there's a Batman and a Robin. There's a guy who's a star and a guy who's not a star. And Rocky Johnson and Tony Atlas were both stars in 1983. They couldn't get along. No, that's that's what I heard that they didn't get along in real life. Um, Tony Atlas talked about it once, and he kind of said, "It's not that we didn't get along; it's just that we weren't really friends," sort of thing. Well, Rocky usually speaks differently about it, and um, the other problem is that Tony Tony will also openly admit that he was difficult at this time. Uh, yes, I, he has talked about that in the past. Um, also, twenty-one years ago today, November fifteenth, nineteen ninety-eight, The Rock. Rocky Johnson's kid won the WWF title for the first time. Uh, it's, uh, uh, if you want to have a wrestling cl- uh, career to emulate, that's not a bad one in today's no. day and age. You not know what? He all. got out early, became a huge star, did the right thing. Always, you know, there's never been a hint of scandal about the guy. Uh, there's really nothing bad to say about him. He did everything the right way. He's, you know, he walked away. He's doing movies. He's, this is like how you draw it up. This is like the Cinderella story for a wrestler. Okay, um, I, I mean, you know what? And we we say this a lot about ECW. ECW did not age particularly well. It does not hold up particularly well. Whenever I watch WWF, what I considered like their golden attitude era from like fall 96 until the end of WrestleMania 2001, I don't think it holds up well. No, but I think The Rock does. The Rock definitely does. I the think Rock definitely stop, does. You're stuck. Our power does. Your top five or six. Austin holds up in his like you know before he became kind of a parody of himself in the early days. Austin holds up and The Rock holds up. I mean, classics. That's what, that's the definition of a classic. Something that's a classic through multiple generations. You know that's why Elvis is always great, and that's why The Rock's always going to be great. And today, kind of sad, uh, Randy Savage would have been 67 years old. Or would have turned 67 years old today. I made a tape. Maybe 20 years ago, probably more than that. It was like a six-hour compilation of Randy Savage's best matches. And I, as I was making making it, I was like, oh, my God, this guy was so good in his prime. No, I think Jim Cornette said it. It's depressing to think about it. There are matches with Bobby Eaton and Randy Savage in some high school in East Tennessee. Mm-hmm. From 1970-whatever, that must have been absolute classics because, I mean, Bobby was ridiculously good in the late 70s. I mean, he was that show. They have like one show on there, and it was like the Bobby Eaton show. Uh, he was – they were both fantastic. They were both great. Both of them had their knees. Yeah. Uh, I mean it, it must have been an amazing show. But yeah, just in his day, by the time he got the WWF, to be honest with you, he was almost a shell of himself. Well, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, he, was he was pretty – I mean, really you, good. If you, yeah, but if you compare him to the almost physical freak he was back in the early 80s and late 70s, 
I mean, yeah, he was still very good, but that just says how great he was back then. Oh, that's true. That's very true. But anyway, uh, recently, and this is what the show is going to be about, um, we the WWE last week on WWE Network d- released a show from the Atlanta Omni uh, from November the 6th, 1983, and it's kind of – the new, it's old, but it's new. It's new. We've never seen anything from the show before, I think, except for the highlights – of the two main events. Um, but yeah, we have, we've got a lot to talk about with this show. Sean, you wanted to talk about kind of how we got, how the promotion started using the Omni in Atlanta. This show is an absolute perfect example of why the city auditorium closing in 1979 was a killer for Georgia. It never really gets brought up, but what they would do is they would have the way they set it up is they would have, have the weekly show or, you know, in, in the city auditorium, which seated about 5,000. And then you would have the blow off in the Omni. Now with the city auditorium, that secondary venue, they have to do everything in the Omni. So you're stuck with shows like this, which is a perfectly fine show. It drew 4,000 people. 4,000 in the city auditorium is fine. 4,000 in the Omni. What's the Omni hold? 16? It held like 15, 14,000. Oof. You can, you can hear conversations in the crowd. Yeah. I mean that's what it can. And, and they can't even find the spot where the front seats are all taken. Uh, no, as a matter of fact, there are two noticeably empty seats in the front row, like right on the hard camera the whole show. And I mean, here's your card. This isn't the worst card in the world. You have – I mean we'll go through this in detail, but just to give you an overview. You start off with um, uh, Pat Rose and Les Thornton, which wasn't on the, the video. It, there's no uh, commentary, by the way, which I kind of like. Um, Brad Armstrong with Joe Lightfoot. I'll go off on that in a minute. Uh, Jake Roberts uh, and Ron Garvin, which was a great little feud. I mean, just a, a real good kind of stylistic matchup with the heavy hitting Garvin and the kind of Weasley, spooky kind of, you know, they just meshed well. Valiant against Kabuki. Okay, say what you want. This Drew. Um, Buzz Sawyer against Abdullah the Butcher. Buzz is having a little, you know, he's kind of doing okay right here, but that's going to end quickly. The Road Warriors against Dusty and Brett Sawyer. Tommy Rich against Ted DiBiase. And DiBiase was a great heel right here at this point. So that's not a bad card. It's just not an Omni card. Well, and I, I think, too, I mean, you're right. Um, and they ran the Omni on Sunday nights every two weeks. Uh, maybe they didn't need to run every two weeks. No, they didn't need to run every two weeks because you have to come up with an Omni show every two weeks. And at that point, you have to start hot shotting. Yeah, and another thing that may have – I mean, you know, I don't mean to complain too much about I, – I feel like I've done it enough uh, – what this promotion was like in the spring and the summer of 1983. But, oh, my God, I mean, Ole Anderson just, I mean, burned it to the ground. He he brought in guys that weren't stars. And, and, you know, I don't mean to harp on this, but you can't have Larry Zbysko and Killer Brooks as your two lead heels in 1983. Um, I mean – you brought this up over and over again. So let me ask you, 1983 in your Georgia, you're Ole Anderson. You still, you know, you're not at the height that you were, mm-hmm. but I mean, you're, you still got the TV station and that meant everything back then. Uh, who are you calling? That I you mean, get? guys I could get. I mean, I, I presumably, you see, here's the thing. Number one, I, I could get a guy like Buddy Rose who was really good. I could get Dynamite Kid. I could get maybe Dundee from Memphis or Savage from Memphis. Um, but that, but that's not even it. It's not that, you know, you bring in this guy and he is who he is and that's all that there is to it. You have to be able to, I, I just think the booking was, was pretty atrocious at this point. I mean, that that's all it boils down to. And you also had a massive locker room problem at this point too. Yes. Um, I mean, Ole spent a lot of time that spring building up the Arn Anderson and Matt Bourne tag team, which they were not as good as it sounds like on paper. They really weren't. And when Matt Bourne got into legal trouble, he hired two bodybuilders from Minnesota called the Road Warriors, who no, no one had ever seen before. And they got over on their own, you know, with a little, little help from Paul Ellering, who I never mm-hmm. thought was that good anyway. But I mean, you know, this is this is a promotion that has national cable and they are on their rear ends. And like I said, a, a lot of the booking was just terrible. Let me bring this up too. 
they stopped talking about the NWA because Ole didn't like the idea that Harley Race was world champion. Then they finally brought we're, we're bringing in Race for a title match against Tommy Rich. I want to say four weeks before this show, maybe six, and Race was a no show. So you're killing the town at this point. And well, the other problem is okay, Tommy. Tommy's. I'll get to. I'm usually a defender of Tommy. Tommy's work in Georgia in the late and the early '80s is fantastic. His work in Memphis, virtually always, is fantastic. His work in '89, I, I, I had nothing but good things to say about this. Yeah, we'll get to this in a second. But right. he's he's out of town in three weeks. Which and if you watch this match, you know you're, the only thing you're thinking is why wasn't he out of town three months before? Is there a reason? I mean, is it? I know they're kind of hoping for former glory or something like that, but is there like a? I mean, Barnett's gone, so I mean, why are they? Are they hoping for a miracle or something? He's got to see what you know everyone else is. No, I mean they're they're kind of scrambling at this point. I mean Tommy Rich was still a big name; he had fallen a little bit. Um, a little. He'd fallen a lot by this point, but I mean, he still had the name. And I mean, I could be going back to what you said, like Ole didn't have a better idea as to who to push. One minute he made it and he was clearly blown up. 60 seconds. And you can see him like sucking air, like he is standing on top of uh, Mount Olympus or you know, whatever. It's you could, He's like – He's just sitting – they just – they have a perfectly quick, hot opening, and then a headlock takedown, and they sit there, and you see Tommy gasping for breath. Yeah. I One mean, minute. You know, we'll, we'll get to that when we get to the, the match itself, but I'll tell you what. Let's start off with Brad Armstrong versus Joe Lightfoot. Now mm-hmm. – this is a babyface match, babyface versus babyface in the opener. And like a strap match or like a chain match, there is only one finish for the babyface match, or there's only one way the babyface match is going to go. And we'll tell you what that is in a minute. Sean, do you know what that is? What's the one finish for a babyface match? No, uh, the, the one kind of script for a babyface match. Usually one guy turns kind of pseudo heel and then they make up at the end. That's pretty close to what happened here, and that's pretty close to what happened on your typical babyface match. What happens is it starts with holds and arm locks and head locks and leg scissors, etc., which this one did. Then one guy starts using uh, more aggressive yet still legal tactics. He'll throw a forearm. He'll throw a knee lift, something like that. He'll start dropping knees on the guy. Uh, so now he's getting a little more heelish and then like finally on a break on the ropes or something as happened in this match, Joe Lightfoot uh, throws a chop at Brad Armstrong on the break. He throws a punch and then he flat out starts acting heelish. That's how they all go. It's just a question of which guy is going to be And this time. It was Lightfoot. It's the only way you can do it because you have to have, I mean, unless you just have two guys who are just so ridiculously good, uh, you know, uh, at, even then, it it takes away something unless you have that good guy, bad guy drama. As far as this match goes, this is – let me just read my notes to kind of give you an idea. We have one fall 20-minute time limit. At the 25-second mark, um, gra- uh, Brad grabs a headlock, and you can hear one person like in the 20th row cheering this. <sighs> At the 145 mark, Brad still got the headlock cinched in. Two minutes, Brad noticed that Lightfoot has issues defending the headlock since we're here. We go up to 2.45. Finally, let's see. Two, no, we're still in the headlock. Four minutes. 4.20, Joe broke out of it. Four minutes out of the first four, five, whatever minutes it was, we had a headlock. You know what, though? Like, this was a house show, and I have been to WWF house shows. Never been to a Georgia house show, but they, they always started really slow in the 80s. I mean, this, this, exactly like that. This a uh, oh. Okay, this isn't exactly a house show. I mean, it's still the Omni. I mean, it's not like one of the big Omni shows, but it's still the Omni. Yeah, I mean, I'm it, comparing it to the like the Boston Garden, though. Oh, I guess. But I mean, I wouldn't compare this to the Boston. This was MSG. Um, this, that's their equivalent. They always said over and over again, Georgia, that this is going to be the MSG of uh, down south. Even uh, Watt said that. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see that, but I mean, the Madison Square Garden uh, 
the opener of the Madison Square Garden show was slow paced, probably not as slow paced as that match. I mean, that match got off to a a pretty brutal like first couple of minutes and then then it got pretty good. My point of bringing up the issue is you you start off with Brad Armstrong, who is usually a guy you can count on to put in a pretty decent effort. Nine, nine, you know, he's not a guy who's going to. Am I correct on that or is there something I don't know? Um, no, Brad was known as, I mean, Brad was an excellent performer and he, yeah. Now I'm wondering, I'm sitting there thinking 16,000 seat arena, you have 4,000. That's what they report. So I'm assuming it's less. It certainly sounds less. I'm wondering if this crowd got to these guys a little bit, just like the opposite of what happened on uh, one of the shows we saw, uh, from, uh, 1989 where the crowd in Philly became part of the show. It almost seemed like this way for the opposite reasons. Where the crowd was just so kind of, oh, I mean, I guess they were allowed for 4,000 and 16,000 seat arena. But I, I wonder if psychologically that had an effect on these guys. Um, I, I doubt it. I think they, they knew what to do. They went, they knew to go out there and it, they knew it was the opener. They knew to kind of keep it, you know, not try to show up the main event or the, the, it, basically, yeah, not try to show up the main event. I mean, the, the opener, that that's just kind of how it went back in the day. Mm-hmm. I guess I it's, it just seemed very slow for Brad. I think I think it's Brad's involvement that messed me up here, because Brad's matches are almost always faster than this. Oh sure, I mean, like I said, I, I think Brad was, you know, it, he wasn't wrestling the way he would wrestle in a main event or even you know a middle of the card. He was wrestling the way he would wrestle in an opener. Um, one thing, Joe Lightfoot used to get, I mean, a lot of heat in the newsletters for how absolutely terrible he was. And in this match, I mean, I didn't think he was bad at all. Yeah, he was, yeah, he was fine, I guess. I mean, it's just, I don't know. It's, there, there seemed, a, with a couple of exceptions, there seemed a lack of, I, I, maybe it was a come down from the, the previous card and the fact that you have the big tag team tournament match coming up next. True. You know, because they had George would always, for some reason, they didn't do it this year. But yearly, they would for some, find some reason why the champion has to be stripped of the title. Tag team champions have to be stripped of the titles. And why you have to have a tournament on, you know, the Thanksgiving Day show. Right. But that's that's coming up too. So I don't know. It just seems like the, it seems like on paper, this shouldn't be, this should be better. But it just, the guys are off or something a little bit. Uh, you know, like I said, I, I think they went out there and worked the match that they were supposed to work. That's just the way it was 36 years ago. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a huge announcement that I should have made earlier in the show. One of our first Stick to Wrestling podcasts, we talked about star ratings and, you know, the whole history of them. And yes, I use them. And I'm giving you star ratings for all of these matches. This star got for me one and one half stars. This match, yeah, I go along with that. Yeah, it, you know, it was just a match. It was—I didn't think it was terrible. Uh, they do what they were supposed to do. Now we get to Jake Roberts and Ronnie Garvin. Um, Sean, you like this feud? I love this feud. You uh, love I this think, feud? I love this feud. I think this was the best thing they had going. Them and DiBiase, and, and the Road Warriors, of course. Uh, it, it, the Road Warriors were only great because they were so different. I mean, they really weren't particularly great. But I mean, they got they polished the act a little later on, but they were great just because it was like, who are these guys? You know, but uh, yeah, I, these two had a great, little, nasty little chemistry to them. I mean, you just I, I like the way you had the overly aggressive Ronnie against kind of uh, the, the strategist of Jake. The matches were interesting. They'd go back and forth where you'd have, you know, you'd start off with them beating the hell out of each other. So at that point, you know, Jake would naturally go Nash Nash. Uh, try again would naturally <laughs> there you go naturally go into the disadvantage and then when the style shifted it would it just it had a nice flow to it i liked their matches okay i i liked a lot of their matches the feud itself by at this point i thought the feud was fine um you've got ronnie garvin who he hadn't been in georgia that long i think he showed up like spring 83 jake had more or less just gotten there um he, jake was only 28 years old at this time, and he was really starting to come into his own. Like, wow, this is a a big guy who was not as skinny as he was just a few years ago, like eighty eighty one. He was really thin. Now he's starting to fill out a little bit, and he's got his act down. Like, he was good as a babyface uh, when I saw him in Mid South. He was 
good enough in his role as Kevin Sullivan's kind of understudy in Florida, like in 82 and earlier in 83. And now it's like, okay, I'm Jake Roberts. I am the star act here. You know, no more Kevin Sullivan. And it's, he's, he's got his gimmick. He's kind of putting, he's kind of already put it together. Yeah, there's not much of a difference between Jake here and Jake in 87. He's pretty much got the – I mean there's less of the WWF goofiness that you have to throw in, you know, the actual snake and, you know, all this other stuff. But he's already kind of got that, you know, that he's doing the DDT. He's doing that backward slide thing he used to do, you know, where he would kind of lower himself to those to his stomach going backwards, you know, that thing. Yeah. That kind of – yeah. He, so he, he was doing the bits that he would end up, you know, making more famous. And Ronnie's Ronnie, you know, just bringing the pain. You know, by the mid-80s, a, a DDT was something they were doing multiple times in every match. And one of the war games, uh, I mean, Arn Anderson DDT'd everyone, every one of the baby faces. But in, by 83, well, like the first time I ever saw the DDT was when Jake Roberts applied it on TV. And I was like, oh, man, he just killed that guy. Yeah. It, well, supposedly the first time he did it was an accident. Is that true? I I have no idea. I heard the first time he had a guy in a front face lock and he slipped backwards on something and he kind of just went, you know, and afterwards they were like, wow, that looked great. Ah, I'd, I'd never heard that story before. Uh, yeah, I, so, I, I, look, well, we're, we're introduced to the t- DDT and you're right. We're introduced to Jake kind of doing that thing where he's slithering around on the stomach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you're you're really if you watch this, you're like, okay, this is the guy I would see in the WWF again, like almost like the Bushwhackers. You know, you take away the goofy, but I mean, yeah, it's it just except he's more sinister, if that's possible. Yes, yes, he he has figured out how to be. I mean, really, a lead heel, and that's what he would eventually become in Mid South. He has figured out how to say something without saying something. He, you yeah. know, how to like almost communicate in the ring to, you know, just by the way he moves. And he's really, I, I, I don't know who gave him these lessons. I'm, uh, I almost want to say it looks like his work with Sullivan, just being around Kevin, may have been a very good influence on him because you're starting to see some of that kind of sinister stuff that Kevin always used to like to do. You know, that's a really good point that, you know, he might have learned an awful lot from Kevin Sullivan uh, because, you know, like I said, I, at this point, I was still used to him, sort of used to him being that baby face I saw in Mid-South. And now he he has grown. He has become a, a legitimate star, in my opinion. Uh, as far as the match itself goes, I thought it was kind of slow paced. Um, I guess it's the second match on the card, but it's still for the TV title. And they did a completely clean finish out of nowhere. Uh, Jake just DDT Garvin pinned him and took the title. 930. And uh, well, here's the Ronnie had this match. It was a nice ending because Ronnie had this match at the end. The the thing with the TV title back then was that you if you were going to have a title change, it had to be within the first 10 minutes. You, the match could go longer, but if you got the pin at the 12-minute mark, you don't get the title. The title change has to be within the first 10. The title change here was at 9.30, and Ron had like was just beating the crap out of Jake, and then just out of nowhere, bang, DDT, and it was over. Yeah, and I, that gets over the hold, and I think that got over the, the, the TV title change. You know, now – and by the way, one thing I noticed about this show – all of the photographers were there. George Napolitano was there for wrestling's main event. Craig Peters was there for the after mags. And I also saw Jimmy Suzuki at ringside. So I'm not sure why they all, you know, descended upon Atlanta, but I guess I'm, they... I'm wondering if maybe they're sitting there like, okay, we got to be here for all for, for Tommy and buzz here. And then like a month later, we got to come back for this, you know, Thanksgiving show. We might as well just stay. Oh, I don't think they stayed in Atlanta. Definitely not. I don't think Craig Peters stayed in Atlanta for a month. I mean, I don't know if that was just kind of or, or that was kind of their area of focus. So, you know, Georgia, the Deep South, stuff like that. Maybe make a trip down to Florida and stuff. One of your crazy old, crazy Smoky Mountain trips. You know, actually, the the after magazines were very much in the corner of Georgia Championship Wrestling. So maybe, you know, they're just pushing that product, so to speak, by having a lot of. Yeah pictures yeah. that they can write articles about and if you're fighting wwf in 1983 it looks it sounds funny to say it now but they're probably your best shot 
Oh, totally. You know, I mean, getting being uh, in the good graces of the magazines and you know having that relationship definitely worked for both sides. Now, w- one thing I was not a Paul Ellering fan, um, and as a matter of fact, I think that's one thing this promotion you know did poorly in 1983. They made it the Paul Ellering show, and they almost made the main feud uh, Ole Anderson, who was semi-retired, against a manager um, who, in my opinion, wasn't very good um but i liked the way ellering acted when the title changed hands i mean to me he did a good acting job acting happy a little bit surprised but really happy that his charge had just won the television title my yeah my opinion he's a worse wrestler too and i'm I'm not in love with him as a manager except in the right situations i liked him for a stretch when he first came to jcp and he had this deal where he he was letting the guys they were because back in the day the road warriors really couldn't talk at this point they were still trying to figure this out Mm -hmm. so you needed paul by the time you got to jcp yo you could have paul take minor seat and having him in the suit with the piece of paper and the glasses it was a good look i like that it was almost like uh you know there's the professional behind the muscle when paul got too involved then you're right then it became a problem yeah and you know this was obviously you know the road warriors very beginning of their career they've been wrestling for about four or five months by this point they did an angle on tv where you know ellering introduced them as the national tag team champions and one day you know then they just had crew cuts and that was it they were wrestling in the chaps and one day they come out with this crazy face paint and these crazy mohawks and we're, I, we, my friends and i were all blown away on this day we're like oh my god check these guys out and they beat the hell out of paul ellering and fired him and then they brought him back with like no explanation left a few weeks later i want to say and they looked they looked a lot different when they started off. Yes. They looked like a steroided up version of the village people. Yes, they know. did. There's when, no other way to put it. Yeah, I, I'm sitting there trying to think of a way to do this, thinking that, you know, talk your animal is going to find me somewhere and, you know, beat the crap out of me. But, I mean, there's really no other way of putting it. And then just, you're right, out of nowhere, I don't know. I guess the story was that Ole went and saw Mad Max or something. And, you okay. know, I was like, oh, oh, there you go. That's what we're going to do. You and, know what? You know, I'm more inclined to think the Road Warriors went to go see it and did it themselves and just did it on their own. Oh, I think Ole's taking credit for going to see Mad Max or something like that. Yeah, but really? You right. Yeah, you I, may be right. Or it could have been Paul. See, the thing I think Paul was good at was he was actually a good manager, not a manager, wrestling manager, a manager. Period. Like if you like, kind of like Gary was, or even um, uh, Humperdinck, he actually was the Road Warriors manager. Yeah, he managed their finances, did all their, you know, he actually did that role well, from what I understand. He got one third of everything. Yeah, but I mean, he was he, he actually took care of them. No, I, I know he, yeah. you know, invested their money. He mm-hmm. arranged their travel and he was well paid for it. And if you keep him on TV as a good figurehead kind of guy, then there you go. Then then you that's the ideal situation. But yeah, it's just a. a I've always kind of wondered how how did he get as far as he did to be honest with you. I mean, he really wasn't very good in the ring. The promos were I hear great things about the promos, but they're okay. You know, they had only brought Paul Ellering in as a wrestler. I want to say the very end of '82 or early 1983, and even as you know, just a, an uneducated fan, a guy who read the magazines, I was like, this guy stinks. This guy is his interviews were just weird and bad. They brought him in as the lead heel uh, when Lawler went down in Memphis in uh, 1980. Oh my God! Was it, I mean, this was almost Jimmy Hart's greatest alchemist job. <laughs> was uh, nearly getting Paul over because it was bad, but he oh he nearly did. Out of all the flotsam and jetsam that he was, a, that that miracle may be bigger than Chick Donovan. You know what? Back in 1980, though, you could have a guy like Paul Ellering go out there with that physique, and he could potentially just get over based on that physique, especially if, A, it's Memphis, and, B, he's got Jimmy Hart with him. And he doesn't speak. Hey, Lance Muscle. Oh, stop. Just stop. It doesn't even make any sense, dude. 
No, he brought only brought Ellering in, uh, like I said, right around the beginning of 1983 and briefly feuded him with Tony Atlas and then Atlas left and Ellering, I guess, didn't have a role. So they made him a manager. By the way, I don't know if you know this or if you and the people at home know this. uh, I think right around this time, uh, the Road Warriors were sharing an apartment with Jake Roberts and Missy Hyatt. How'd you like to be their neighbors? Ah, now that brings me to my next point. Back to Paul real quick. Uh, two things. One, um, do you think Ole Bay have been thinking that, gee, maybe I should put somebody with these two just in case looking at my locker room right now? Mm, yeah, that might be a good point. <laughs> I never thought of that one, but yeah, that's definitely a possibility. And I believe, Paul, the reason for Paul's retirement was he broke his leg. I think he uh, – it was one of those things where he had some kind of major knee injury or something like that, and uh, Paul – and they still wanted to use him for the promos, so they kept him. All right. I mean, like, I, he – you know, no offense to those who may have been a fan of Ellering or Ellering himself. I I was not high in this guy. But anyway, Jake Roberts versus Ronnie Garvin, it sounds good on paper. I didn't think it was that great. It was slow-paced. I'm giving this baby two stars. I'm going. I'm going three and a half. I liked it. I liked the pacing, the pace switch, but the space switch because you knew the guys. Because when it went to Jake, it would slow down, and then when it speed up, it go back to Ronnie again. So that was part of the whole uh, yin and yang of the match, if you will. Uh, I'll give it yeah three and a half. I'll go three and a three stars, but just because I, if I could get this for fifteen minutes, uh, but because it was a TV title, it had to be under ten. Too short, so we'll do three. All right. You know, they and I can tell you, they didn't really do a good job explaining a lot of things on Georgia TV, but the, that TV title stipulation, they did not do a good job explaining on TV. Anyway, they, they used it as an out because they could conveniently forget it when they needed to. Yeah, uh, good point. <laughs> All right. Third match on this show, Jimmy Valiant against the great Kabuki. Now. By this point, I had been getting Georgia Championship Wrestling on TV for just over two years. Uh, If I recall correctly, Kabuki had not wrestled a match on TV in over a year. I believe the way they brought – they hyped this up was they had Gary Hart and Kabuki do an interview. Obviously, Gary Hart's doing all the talking uh, from the set of Mid-Atlantic Television, and then they just brought the tape to Atlanta. The hottest this crowd's been all night. Uh, Without question. Without question. And I'll I'll give Jimmy credit. Jimmy, I was – before the show, I was telling Lou. I was like, Jimmy, if I'm going to say which guy worked the hardest in this card, it might be Jimmy. No, I mean, yeah, Jimmy worked hard. And another point, if I recall correctly again, Jimmy Valiant did not appear on Atlanta television. He just uh, came on with that uh, video with the Joe Walsh music that we've all seen like nine million times. Oh god! I, I just think it's because of the the uh, the Joe Walsh thing. But uh, yeah, no, you had the whole. Thing. He even busted out the Memphis chain. He did it yes, like he Waller did, did it, where he, where he like pulls open his tights up like a mile wide, just so he can make sure he can reach in, I guess, and then reaches in, waves it around. <laughs> you know, the whole Waller bit is a face. Yeah, um, and it shows you when he did that. I mean, just out of nowhere, he pulls a, a chain out of his trunks and he shows it to the crowd, and the crowd cheers. Shows you how much the business was changing because now you have a baby face that is flagrantly cheating, showing off with it, and the fans love it. I mean, you just uh, the, okay. Jimmy's offense here was um, uh, you got two kicks to the berries. Uh, you had a bit where he's using his shin to choke Kabuki and sitting on his face. Um, let's see, a couple uh, chain shots, which was surprising. In Memphis, one shot, he's down. Yeah. For some reason, Jimmy needed two. It must have been a different kind of chain. Um, stylistically, it was a hot mess. But, I mean, it was if you know what you're expecting, it's, you know, it's a Jimmy Valiant match. And it was for that category, it was a decent. Yeah, one observation, Jay Valiant attacked Gary Hart before the match. Um, and again, they have no history on television. She so have no idea why this baby face is beating up the manager for no reason. Of course, the crowd liked it. But after Gary Hart takes this, you know, beat down two minutes later, he's at ringside watching the match like nothing happened. Like you can't hold your head or something as if, you know, you're feeling some pain from this thing that happened 120 seconds ago. I guess, but I mean, it's, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to think if I've ever seen Jimmy actually hurt somebody else. 
I mean, Jimmy wins. Yeah. But I don't, I, I'm trying to remember any stretcher jobs. It's almost like it's okay just to no sell Jimmy stuff. Yeah. You know, and I remember back in 1983, I was still just not used to this version of Jimmy Valiant. I mean, he was, you know, part of the Valiant brothers, kind of being a pretty boy with the long hair. And now he's his new gimmick, uh, which which three people that it. Yeah, his, <laughs> he's, you know, this kind of town drunk guy. He does it now. I know. I mean, he'll still roll out there. Hey, again, God, it's one of those things where I'm looking at like this shouldn't work, but it does. Yeah, he would be. He would have been wrestling in Dick the Bruiser's WWE in 1983 had he not gotten smart and found that gimmick. Yeah, probably. And I mean that. And but I mean, well, I mean, he was doing okay without it because before he went to that gimmick, didn't they offer him the house in Memphis? Ah. Uh... I don't know. Um, I, they, know I was... believe Jared and Lawler offered him a house to stay in Memphis in the early 80s before he made the trip down to Georgia where he first started morphing into that weird Jimmy character, the uh, the street people. Actually, it was Mid-Atlantic. He came to Mid-Atlantic okay. in 1981, managed by Lord Alfred Hayes as King James Valiant. And it was still the pretty boy gimmick with the Jerry Lawler uh, cape and, and crown thrown in there. And he soon morphed out of that and became, you know, handsome Jimmy with the long blonde beard and just, you know, kind of the street guy deal. If you made a list of the of the guys who have wrestled in front of the most individual people in their careers i bet you jimmy's pretty damn high on the list uh you are probably right he i mean he's had such a long career and he's been all over the place and uh i mean our good friend tyler judd who was once on the show told i mean he says he lives in the in north carolina and he said the virginia and the carolinas you could have a show in the middle of nowhere with jimmy valiant on it and draw a house because they love jimmy valiant and you had Jimmy Valiant doing commercials for furniture stores in Memphis. That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, he was huge in Memphis. Like I said, he they gave he left the house with like the I, the story was that he dropped the keys off in Lawler's you know you know with Lawler or something. And just said, "Sorry, Daddy, I got to go to the Mid Atlantic or something like that." Yeah, and but I mean, yeah. they were going to give him a house. Uh, I you know what I I. I I'm not saying I don't believe that story, but I can't totally embrace it because I would think that if they made Lawler that not Lawler Valley at that kind of offer, he would have taken it because if you look, I mean, he went to Mid-Atlantic with, you know, very little prospects. I, uh, I have another reason for you to now go to the Facebook page because I guarantee you by noon, <laughs> maybe by Friday afternoon, Bo James will confirm this opinion one way or the other. All right, yeah, because he's a very good friend of Jimmy's. That is correct. So, your assessment of the Jimmy Valiant versus Kabuki match, Sean Goodwin, as an actual match itself, one star. (laughs) As a Jimmy Valiant match, eh, two and a half. I wanted to like the match. I wanted to not be that, you know, typical wrestling observer newsletter guy who's just down on all things Jimmy Valiant. Um, but I, I just couldn't. It, it just wasn't very good. It started off strong. It ended fairly strong. But there was a lot of just really nothing going on in between. And 4,000 people in Atlanta disagree with you. No, I wound up giving it one star. It's the best I could do. I By can't the way, create these. I can't create these matches like I grade another match. It's just too different. All right. Uh, another thing, you know, you had asked me earlier in the show, who should Georgia have brought in? I mean, Kabuki wasn't exactly wrestling the main event in Mid Atlantic. I mean, here's a guy who maybe you could have brought back with Gary Hart. I guess, but I mean, really, that, uh, yeah, that's. <sighs> I just don't see that as a big upgrade, though. Uh, you might be right. Um, I mean, I mean, he couldn't even get to the top of the card in you know in ten in, uh, Dallas either. No, well, Kabuki's kind of a complicated story because he was over like crazy in Georgia, like eighty one, eighty two, and then the promotion as a featured out. attraction. Yeah. And then the promotions went out. And I, right, he was on top of the card with Roddy Piper in tag team matches, like in the main event against Dusty Rhodes and Tommy Rich. Then other promotions started creating their own great Kabukis, and now you know, he's just not unique anymore. I mean, this guy, including you know, Gary, when he made Muda. 
Good point. Yeah. I mean, by that point, you know, the great Kabuki was kind of not doing anything in the United States. He was back, he had been back in Japan. Uh, another great, great Kabuki thing. Supposedly he was supposed to come to New York, like, uh, or the, I should say the WWF, like spring of 1983, he was supposed to arrive being managed by captain Lou Albano. And they were going to give him a major program with Jimmy Snuka. I don't know if that story is true or not, but I'm telling everyone that I heard it. I I see him as a guy you can bring in for a short run on top, maybe. And like the way they used him in '81 was perfect. They did this silly Dragonshire match with Rhodes and a tag team, and you know there was usually a tag team, either that or he's up against like Abdullah or something, yeah. another kind of. But if you have him on top of your card as like the national champion, you got a problem. Um, you know what? I'm going to agree with you there. He should have been the kind of guy that, like, a Tully Blanchard brought in. Remember when in '85 when Tully exactly. brought in Abdullah the Butcher? Like, he could have yep. done that with Kabuki. A feature that that's my definition of a featured guy, a guy that's being brought in for a certain period for not too long, and you're going to move him along. I mean, I honestly, when they laugh at Oli when he says this, but this is what Oli was thinking when he's looking at Hulk Hogan, saying, "I don't think he could do this every night like we did it." Meaning, you know, he worried that the fact that he would be looked at as an attraction, you know, because all guys like him were looked at as an attraction and that you just couldn't have him as a champion. It's that that was the thinking. I mean, that's true. Well, I, I told you, I, I know Oli, I think I heard Oli say that for the first time, I want to say like 30 years ago, and I still disagree with him. I mean, number one, if you feel like you can't push him, don't devote that much TV time to him. Number two, Hulk Hogan went out and proved that he could be pushed everywhere else, including the WWF starting like towards the end of 1979. Oh, I don't, I'm not telling you he's right. I'm okay. just, I'm giving you an example of the thinking. That if if you can't push a featured guy, it's the same thing with the NWA, how you can never have like a mass guy as champion or something like that. You did not push featured guys, you know, to you know, unless you were the WWF. Occasionally they would do it. But I mean, uh, down south, mm-mm, never happened. No, I, I don't know. I mean, like I said, I think they could have had very easily had a very effective Tony Atlas versus uh, Sterling Golden. Uh, feud in oh, 1979. Yeah, no, no, that Hulk, yeah. I, I'm more talking about Kabuki, but oh, Hulk, okay. yeah, yeah, Hulk, absolutely. I'm, but I'm just, I'm using that as an example of when guys look at somebody they classify as feature, they're yeah. automatically not going to push him no matter how good he is, and even if his name is Hulk Hogan. All right. So now in two weeks, Buzz Sawyer has in the last two weeks, Buzz Sawyer has turned babyface, And this is his first appearance in Atlanta in that role. Uh, he's taking on Abdullah the Butcher, who is brought in by Paul Ellering as a uh, a bit of an assassin type. Um, and here's the thing. I, I want to make sure I get this in. Oli had spent close to a year building up the Buzz Sawyer turn. Uh, I even I figured out what was going to happen because I knew Brett was his brother um, and I kind of saw the whole thing coming together like Buzz Sawyer and uh, Paul Ellering were going getting further and further apart and they were disagreeing on things and I mean at this point Buzz Sawyer I couldn't I looked up his age on Wikipedia I knew he was pretty young, but he's 24 years old here. He's got to be the world's oldest 24-year-old right now. Go look at him in 1980. He looks like he's in high school. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you're, you're talking three years, and he is aged, I would say. I can confidently say from the stuff I've seen from him in 79 in Memphis, tonight, this time right here, I can safely say he's aged 15 years at least. It looks it. And, you know, one thing – I mean, I, I know Ole Anderson, he said, said it right in his book, he was unaware of any steroid use in the Georgia oh. locker room. Uh, oh, let me tell you something. In 1983, I was aware that that uh, – Buzz Sawyer was going nuclear with the store with the steroids just by looking at him. I mean, he had that look like he was about to explode. Ole may want to touch up those prescriptions a little bit because, I mean, you, you know, you didn't need to be a doctor to figure this one out. Yeah, I, I, mean, I mean, all these guys are just becoming gigantic, except for Tommy, who just is gaining weight. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's got these gigantic road warriors. He's got Buzz, who, you know, like I said, looks like he's about to explode. I mean, th- to me, I-, I just don't believe that. I don't believe that he was unaware. I think the no. best thing for him to have said was, look, 
I I don't police these guys. They want to use steroids. I don't tell them to stop. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. So if I if I shoot this thing in my ass and I got to work out, I thought the whole point was I still got to sit down and drink B and B wildfire. <laughs> hey, oh, no, 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 no. I'm just shooting the thing. Them. Yeah, they were wrestlers who took them and did not work out. But anyway, yeah, that probably didn't work out well. Uh, so uh, one thing I noticed about this match, uh, Paul Ellering has changed his clothes. He was wearing a pair of plaid pants earlier in the night. Now he is wearing black pants. I don't know why. You got to spiff up. You get the butcher. Big, big doings. He's brought in the butcher. You know, he spent fifty bazillion dollars to bring in the butcher to take out Tommy Rich. I just, I just Tommy Rich. I'm change okay. my Plus pants oil. between between matches unless I absolutely had to, and there was a reason for it. Probably anyway, put on a tuxedo. Uh, Abdullah was only forty two here, which surprises me. And oh, I mean, oh, stop it! I I am two years older than Abdullah here. <laughs> I, I, I whoa. I'm just okay. I just wow. Uh, go ahead. No, I was going to say I, I was surprised he was only 42 because it seemed like you know he was someone that the business had more or less passed by in maybe I don't know in the U.S. maybe three or four years ago. But I mean, this it was a good match. It was good action, but it was really short. Uh, it had a good post match brawl. Had a lot of blood. Um, I gave the match. I gave the match three stars. It was a more violent Lou Albano match from the garden. Oh, I mean, okay. I see that. You, you had you had the fork, you had arms waving around, and you had you know, and Buzz took a couple nasty uh, bumps. It was yeah, it was a straight out brawl. It was you weren't expecting something like this to last long. I don't think any of us wanted it to last long actually. No. So you know, it's one of these things where let's get it over with quick. We need Buzz to have some win for the next match. Uh, yeah, and the next match is Dusty Rhodes and Brett Sawyer, kind of an odd combination against the Road Warriors. Um, and, you know, of course, you're left wondering why they just don't go straight from straight to Buzz and Brett against the Road Warriors, which may, would have made more sense. But then again, maybe you're helping get Brett Sawyer over by putting him next to Dusty Rhodes. In other words, yeah. this guy's good enough to be teaming with Dusty Rhodes. Here's my first note before I even start watching this match. Quote, so let me guess how this is going to go. Brett gets some early offense, and the Road Warriors begin to beat him. Hot tag to Dusty. Dusty kicks ass. Sawyer back in. He gets an ass kicking. Frankie Hill, Billy Robinson versus Stevenson Patterson. How close was I? Uh, <laughs> you were pretty close. I mean, you, just, you just look at it. You know Dusty's not going to take a bump. No. No, and you knew Buzz was going to get involved. Yes, so you pretty much know exactly. And this is part of the problem. This is the problem with the Georgia booking that is legit. Is that you're seeing everything they're about to do from ten miles away. Yeah, yeah. I they, mean, you have to be a moron not to know that half of this stuff is going to happen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and. If it's so predictable, I mean, I understand, look, you don't want to reinvent the, the wheel. There is such a thing as booking 101, but you also don't want to be some, do something that's so obvious and so predictable. Now, Paul Ellering, once again, has changed his attire. He has gone from the white shirt and black pants to putting a black jacket over the white shirt. This is his third wardrobe of the night. I had no idea he was the original Miss, Liz Miss Elizabeth, but here we are. He's the Vanna White of wrestling. <laughs> Just have to have him move in a couple letters. There you go. So, I mean, the Road Warriors did sell big for Dusty Rhodes, as they should have. But the Road Warriors, you know, they were never big into selling for anybody, especially at this point in their career. And it kind of made sense at this point because it, it, it's what made them special. Like I said, they should be giving like 2% of their pay to poor Mike Jackson, who they beat in the pudding back yeah. in the early days when they were trying to figure out what they were doing. But, I mean, it's – they it, – yeah, it's, uh, that, it works because that, their size, their, you know, they're almost – you don't want to see people bullying them because that takes away the one thing they do. Yeah. 
No, I mean, you know, and I, I wrote this too. I mean, I said about this about Buzz. He's 24 years old at this point. This was the apex of his career. This is something they had been building towards. And Brett is only 23 years old here. And this was his career apex. His career would come crashing down around him very soon, never to get a push even resembling one like this ever again. Now, let me ask you about Brett because I don't think Brett – I thought Brett had some upside. Um, I thought Brett could have been perfectly fine like in almost like a Robert Gibson type of role because I thought he sold well uh, in a match. I mean he could really do kind of that Ricky Morton kind of role pretty well. And so if you had a guy with him with a little more – a little extra charisma or something like that, I don't know. I, I could see that you know him being reasonably successful. Do you think him getting pushed as hard as he did as soon as he did kind of killed him? I think it might have. I think, you know, it might have been a case of too much too soon. I mean, he he should have had a career after this. I mean, I think he's he's way over pushed here. I mean, he's the national heavyweight champion. You know, you're you're putting him in, in just too high a spot. Um, but there there were things you could do with Brett Sawyer. I mean, he was a good looking guy, he was a decent worker, he could dr- uh, throw a really good drop kick again he's only 23 so with experience you think he's going to get better but man i mean after he quit got fired whatever happened here he wound up going back to portland did pretty well over there but it's mm-hmm. portland you're you're in, you're in a tag team in portland and then he wound up in mid-south and like you know an underneath role and kind of disappeared after that how do you think about him with I, – I just randomly thought of this because this is another guy who was like we need to find something to do with him. Putting him with uh, Don Canodal. Yeah, you know, that that could have worked. I mean I think – yeah, I mean Brett could have been like you know the good-looking baby-faced guy yeah, in a tag team like that. Because you mentioned um, you mentioned that you would you would have uh, the the team with Art, Arn Anderson and um, oh Mr Olympia there uh, Stubbs mm-hmm. and how it you know it didn't look as good as it seems on paper. The reason it didn't look as good is because it was the same guy. I mean, there really there was no point. It's you know they both kind of had the same style. The difference with the thing with the tag team is you want as you said the Don Cronodal kind of cocky muscular and then the good looking you know kind of more you know I don't want to say babyface but that that kind of guy. Yeah, so you want that contrast. Yeah, the one problem with Brett Wayne or Brett Sawyer being a babyface, he was on the short side and he kind of had that look as the, you know, underneath baby babyface underdog and that might not have translated well into a heel role. But then again, a lot of guys That's a tag team, though. Yeah, a lot of guys surprised me when they, you know, turned babyface mm-hmm. or heel like, "Wow, I never thought they would be this good." So anyway, they do the hot tag sp- spot with Brett, uh, and you're in a tag team with Dusty Rhodes, and you're getting the hot tag. Like you're being put in a nice spot, and he did not. It, the spot did not get a pop, and that made me say, "Oh no, this, this is not going well." Because they're putting him in the spot. This, this isn't even his fault. They're putting him in a spot where he can't possibly. You know, he's gonna fail eventually, especially sitting next to Rhodes. Yeah, I, I mean, it's. Uh, it, uh, I see what you're saying by trying to give him the rub with Rhodes, but by putting him with Rhodes and using him this way, you just make him look like a chump next to Rhodes because he's Maybe. the one who gets his butt kicked the whole time. I know. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good point. The match, I thought, had a really weak ending and it was something we all kind of saw coming. There was a little bit of a curve. Paul Ellering rant runs in for no reason whatsoever. I mean, with the least- show. <laughs> at least have a reason why he's in the ring. Like the road warriors are getting beat up or, you know, dusty throws him in the ring, something, but he just goes in there, you know, when, when nothing's happening. Um, and we all knew, you know, buzz was going to run in and do what he, we all knew this was coming. Ellering was going to interfere and buzz was going to save the day. Um, but they did something weird before buzz got to the ring. They threw dusty outside the ring. So now it's Brett, Sawyer by himself against the Road Warriors and Paul Ellering. And they're doing this thing where it looks like they're trying to do an arm injury angle. Like the Road Warriors are holding down his arm and Ellering comes off the middle rope and like stomps on the arm. But then the Road Warriors start working on the other arm. <laughs> I did not notice that. But yeah, that would, I think that would be very, that would uh, add to their greenness. 
<laughs> possibly. I mean, it's at some point if you're Ellering or someone's got to say, dude, the other arm. Yeah, you I tell him. I, yeah, really. I, I would tell him as a matter of fact. <laughs> I don't know if. And puff like up I the said, chest when you do it. Look all macho. Yeah, I, I don't know if, you know, like I said, maybe they weren't doing an arm injury angle, but it sure looked like it. And I think I remember Brett having his arm in a sling. Anyway, what was your overall assessment of this match, Sean? Uh, of this match? Um, OK, I, I made it sound some, the angle to sound somewhat pedestrian, and it, it was. <laughs> but as far as what happened in the ring, it, it looked OK. Uh, it's a road warrior, so you have to take points off automatically back then. Um, but it was still special having them in the ring. I would say three. I, 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 once again, I wanted to like it and I just couldn't, I just couldn't get into it. Um, I gave, I gave it two stars. It was okay. That's about all I can say about it. It I might be, I might be doing what you're worried about doing. What's that? That I want to like it. Okay. Yeah, I did that with the Kabuki match with yeah. Valiant, just not to be cliche, and I couldn't do it. And this match, like I said, I wanted to like it, and it just wasn't very good. Uh, you know, and again, I get it. You're working with the Green Road Warriors, but it wasn't that great. Finally, we have the main event: Ted DiBiase against Wildfire Tommy Rich. Um, I mean, let me give you a little bit of background. I mean, it really felt like Ted DiBiase had arrived and saved this promotion. Like, here is a heel who is a real star, not a rising star like Jake Roberts, not a rising star like the Road Warriors, not a used to be a star like Larry Zbysko. A legitimate star has arrived from Mid-South Wrestling, one of the best in the entire game. Yep, and the guy he would need to go with to bring this company to the top level is walking in with a little beer belly hanging over his belt, about to be blown up 50 seconds into this match. Yes, and a little more background on Ted DiBiase. He was a big star as a babyface here in 1981. He got into the big feud with the Freebirds. Uh, he comes back two years later as a heel. And what happened was, you know, and uh, we opened the show. I want to say this was September or October of, of 83. Gordon Soley just calmly says, and making his return, Ted DiBiase. DiBiase gets in the ring and slowly but surely starts relying on more aggressive tactics. Um, you know, and then he starts cheating and beating on the guy a little bit. And then he calmly walks over to the desk after the match and tells Gordon Soley that, hey, I've changed my style. I've become a little bit more aggressive. I'm going to do whatever it takes to win. There was no like dramatic heel turns. Like, yeah, I'm back and I'm a bad guy. We've mentioned this before about Ted. You oftentimes when you see people turn face or heel, they'll just make slight adjustments to the character. And then They'll be against, you know, if you're a baby face, you're fighting people the fans don't like, you know, either. So it, it just works. In this case, Ted completely overhauls his entire personality. He's an entirely different human being when he's a heel than when he's a face. It's really, as you said, it's remarkable to look at. And he doesn't need an angle. No, no, he doesn't. He does not he need just... your help to get over. Unfortunately, he needs somebody else in the ring, which they did not have as a baby face. Now, here's what I said. I thought Tommy Rich actually looked okay here now looks can be deceiving i mean obviously people you know when they have weight problems the weight can fluctuate um he looked a a little bit leaner than he had earlier in the year like spring summer of 83 which may not be the greatest in 89 yes he did he definitely did yeah i mean but you know he's his his weight was worse and would get worse, um, you know, yes. before and after this match. But we're, we're, yeah, we're not at the big dawn level yet. <laughs> no, um, but I have a question. Do you have any idea why Pez Whatley? Why Pez Whatley was the referee here? I was about to ask you the same question. <laughs> I, 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 I have no idea. I, I, I'll be honest with you. I didn't even realize it was Pez Whatley until about most of the way into the match. Like, wait, is that Pez Whatley? That's and there's exactly no audit. And there's no there's no audio. I was like, oh, John, I'll know that. Um, <laughs> so yeah, no, I have no idea. I, I I'm yeah, I'm trying to think. I'm guessing they're trying to make it so they're trying uh, stacking the odds, maybe, maybe against you know against Ted because I, do they know Tommy's gone by this point? Because he's I believe he loses the next time they're in the Omni, he loses a loser leave town match to Ted, and he's not even in the main event when he does it. 
Okay, right, but he didn't leave. He came back as Mr. R. Oh, he did do that right away? When did he end up leaving for good? Oh, my God. They tr- oh, I did he, not realize Mr. R was in that context. Okay, he ended up leaving for Memphis, I want to say, February or March. And by the time they were on, uh, by the time they got kicked off TBS, but then put back on TBS in that, like, uh, six in the morning show on Saturday, yeah. whatever it was, he was back. And then he was, Tommy was back until Crockett took over. And after Tr- Crockett took over, he was gone, like, I want to say four or six weeks after that. I mean, he uh, is uh, – take his physical appearance out of it, okay? You can see him gasping for breath. Yes. Like he is about to gasp for – like he is in – you know, in – Again, he, like he's on some massive mountain right now. He's like on uh, another planet where the oxygen hose broke. That is what he looks like right now in the, a minute into the match. Yeah, it, that's, it was that's one not minute, good news. And then at this point, it's just toast. Basically, Ted's carrying around dead weight the rest of the match. And again, you, this should have been this should have been the perfect feud. I'm wondering if Ole's sitting out back going, are you kidding me? Here's my feud right here. This is the thing that was supposed to bring it back. And forget about it. Who who do you have as – I'm trying to think when Ted was there. Who was he up against outside of Rich? Because who did they have his face? Did they bring back wrestling too again? Uh, no. When he was there, he mainly wrestled Tommy Rich. He had a brief kind of – I want to call it – he had not a feud but a, li- a little program with Ronnie Garvin. And then they did the Mr. R thing, and he was, he was, was in there against Brad Armstrong, and that was it. He was gone by the time no, – was he gone by the time Vince took over? Or he was – I think he was on his way out by the time Vince took over. Well, I can see why. I mean, I, I want to criticize, but who else is there? I, I was going to sit there and go, who else would you have him up against? You have Ronnie Garvin, and outside of that, I mean, the re- there's nobody else as a babyface on this on the entire roster. Uh, no, I am I w- am willing to bet that. Well, first of all, having the Rich versus DiBiase feud was a good idea because I mean they teamed a lot in 1981. They were portrayed oh. as friends, so I mean it, it was a natural feud. Sure, I think. That the grand plan was to eventually have Ted DiBiase and probably another heel feuding with uh, the Sawyers because the Sawyers were going to be the, the lead baby faces of this promotion. And it, it, for, it never came together. I mean, Buzz wound up getting fired, I want to say, two months after this show, maybe not even. See, I can actually see that team working in the context of what we were just talking about. Why did, why did Buzz get fired? I'm trying to remember this time. Oh, I mean, I, I don't think he did one thing one day. I think oh, OK. It's just a culmination of things. Yeah. And he was in Crockett and they like for a couple minutes in 85. He went to the WWF in 84 and quickly and, washed out. Yeah, he was completely. Was he good anywhere after this last in 83 in Georgia? He was good in world class. Um yeah, he was really good in world class. The only problem was that, you know, I mean, he's having Buzz Sawyer against one of the Von Erichs in 1986 just wasn't a draw. I mean, I went to the Providence Civic Center uh, for a world class show in 86 and talk about a bomb scare. I think there were 500 people there for the main event of Kevin Von Erich and Buzz Sawyer. And uh, well, do you think it's possible that Buzz looked good in world class just because of who he's around? Maybe. I mean, their their heel roster at that point was was so depleted. Um, That's what I'm saying. Yeah, and he was really good with Dick Slater in like late '85, early '86, and mid South. Uh, and that mm. I think that was a good role for Buzz. It's like you know, kind of the maniacal sidekick for the guy who's the real star. Yeah, and that was a great stretch for Dick. Oh, yeah, totally. So anyway, Sean, your assessment of this match, main event, final one, Ted DiBiase and Tommy Rich. Two. Because of Ted. I gave it two and a half, and it was all because of Ted. Ted was such a great heel here. Really big guy. 
so fluid, knew how to bump. They were had a spot in the match where Tommy was just covered in blood. It was insane. And the ref, Pez Watley, was trying to check the cut, and Ted DiBiase just goes right in and starts gouging the wound. It was great. Yeah, if Ted's not in this match, we're getting the hot pokers out. Let's put it that way. Yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. And so, Sean, uh, your assessment of this show, this card as a whole. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a must-watch, but it's, there, there, are, there are worse things you could do, I guess. I mean, it, it, it's interesting just to watch early Road Warriors and uh, Ted DiBiase, and again, I love the Ronnie and uh, Jay. So there's stuff here that you can't really see anywhere else, so I'd say it's worth your time to check out, but don't kill yourself. I, I, you guys can probably tell. I mean, I am such a fan of this kind of wrestling from this era, yeah. and I came in wanting to like this show, and I just couldn't. It just wasn't that good. I'm sorry. I mean, it's not even you know just my expectations were ridiculously high because they weren't. It just wasn't that good a show. No, it, it, yeah, it really wasn't. It wasn't even as good as it was on paper. And again, I still hold out to some extent that. But yeah, yeah, the book, uh, yeah, they just, you start to see them start to get disheartened here. Uh, maybe. Uh, yeah, maybe. I don't know. But anyway, I say this every week. It is the fastest hour of my week. I can't believe our time's already gone. Sean, thank you for everything you do. I want to take a moment to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, who does an excellent job behind the scenes. And this podcast has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. Go Vols! Go Vols!